Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's Mike and Davina, and welcome to yet another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm really happy you're here. Today, I'm chatting with Josh Bowman, who is a mixing engineer who first got his start working as an assistant for producers and engineers such as Randy Staub, Bob Rock, Garth Richardson, and he's worked with artists such as Michael Buble, Good Charlotte, Carly Rae Jepsen, ACDC, Nickelback, and a whole bunch more. We have a really great conversation where he shares a lot of great insight on the importance of using filters to help create a cleaner low end. He shares some tips on how to give yourself adequate headroom when you're starting a mix. We talk about mixing with limiters on your master bus and the importance of using compression on your tracks. And he also shares some really good insight on the intern grind and what you need to do if you're starting off in your career and you're working for a studio and how to really stand out when you're working as an intern and what to do, what not to do so that you can make the proper impression in order to advance your career. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump right into the interview. So Josh, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for people who might not be familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do, how you got into mixing? Yeah, I'm primarily a mixer. I also produce and engineer quite a bit. Um, I've been doing this for professionally about 10 years now, probably since I was 15 or 16. Um, I started pretty young. I was It's kind of the classic example. My buddies wanted to start a garage band and uh, they didn't have a drummer. So they're like, hey, do you want to learn to play the drums? So I picked up a drum set and learned how to play drums. And in the process, we wanted to start recording. And the bassist dad was actually like a full-time country musician. And we found this old like live console in their basement. And I was the one that was sort of the nerd of the three. So uh, we took it out. And at the time, it was the very first M-Audio sort of reasonably priced PCI card, the two-input one. So I bought one of those and built a little PC for recording and started from there. And so I've been doing that since I was, yeah, 15 or 16, I guess. Awesome. It seems like it's a very common thing for drummers to want to be engineers and vice versa. A lot of my favorite probably producers and mixers are actually drummers, which is kind of funny. Yeah, same here. How do you feel that your ability to play drums has influenced the work you do? Uh, I mean, I think especially in modern music with hip-hop and EDM becoming so mainstream and influencing all the other genres, I feel like the rhythm section is just like everything now. Rhythm and top line is, is most musical genres at this point. So I think it's a huge advantage to be able to have an understanding of how rhythm works in music and how different feels make people feel and you know how it affects the audience. For sure. Can you tell me a little bit about your current studio setup these days? What are you using? Yeah, so um, in my main mixing setup, I have a Universal Audio Apollo, the uh, one of the newer black-faced eight or eight-channel, but uh, four preamp models. Um, I've got an SSL G series, um, just like the newer uh, 500 series bus comp. Um, I've got a distressor that I run stuff through sometimes. And I've got a little um, 500 series like mastering EQ, sort of like a Pultec-ish style thing, um, just for a little bit of nice top end once in a while. But um, most of my mixing now, since I got the UAD stuff a few years ago, has been in the box. It's like 90%. So do you use a lot of the outboard stuff more for just tracking it? So my setup is primarily mixing. I don't actually have really a tracking room. I rent other studios for that. But uh, I just find, depending on where it was recorded, especially people that did stuff in smaller home studios, 
having a couple of compressors and an EQ, just I'll pass stuff through it while I'm in the mixing process. If I really feel like I can't get what I want from the plugins I have, or I just want to have some fun, it's it's more fun to run stuff through outboard gear. Yeah, definitely. I hear you with that. I'm I'm kind of in the same mindset. Like for me, like I have a rack of outboard gear, but I rarely use it in the mixing stage. And yeah. it's, for me, it's just like recording it through is fun. But yeah. for recalls, it, it sucks. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I probably use... I, I've done a bunch of ABs with the SSL bus compressor, which is like a new addition as of the end of last year. Um, it does sound a little better, especially on rock and stuff that's a bit up-tempo with loud drums. However, I still use it on half of the projects just because of recall. Yeah, I totally love digital plugins for that reason. Yeah, exactly. You can't beat it. And when you're working on... Sometimes I'll mix mixing five different projects in the span of two weeks and jumping back and forth. And it's just hard to, to, you know, even recalling two pieces of gear now seems like a pain, pain in the <laughs> butt, which is kind of funny. Because you're mixing so many projects all at once, how do you stay focused on the music for those things? Or, or do you find that it helps to be kind of breaking it apart? I actually try, when I get a new project, I try to a lot, depending on the budget and what we set aside for time, say like the average of say a song a day for a, you know, like a fully produced rock thing. I'll, I'll budget that initially in the project, and usually it starts to overlap once like my first half day or day has gone on each song, and it's been sent to the band or the producer to get notes back. Um, inevitably, projects, some come back with no notes, but you know, 90% of the things have at least a couple of revisions. So it's at that point where things start overlapping, and I'll be starting on a new project, and then people will be delayed because now they don't have to get back to me in the two-hour window I give them because it's not in a big studio that's on the clock, you know, day rate, so... It just sort of rolls over that way. But generally, when I start a project, I try to allocate at least six to eight hours just to focus on that and really get into the music and find the sound for the project. So six to eight hours per mix? Yeah, it, it really depends. This year, things have started to go a bit faster. Um, I've changed my monitoring setup, and I really um, am into kind of the new speakers I'm using. Four or five hours of work with, with breaks turns into five or six. Um, is sort of usually the initial chunk of time. So what about your monitors has helped speed things up? I just find I'm not, and it's probably a combination of monitors and also just the last couple of years, I feel like I really hit a stride as far as consistency and quality. I'm just not really referencing on that many other systems anymore. Like I have one main set of speakers. I have a little mono reference. I have a car, but I kind of stopped doing car checks last year and it seems to just be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just... um. I just kind of stopped worrying about it, and also it stopped being a problem. Usually, when I'll check on my my iPhone earbuds. That's sort of my go-to second reference right now, and um, 90% of the time, it's not surprising. Low end might be a bit a bit boomy or something, but well, it's one of those things too, where after you've done the car test for so long, and you've gone back and forth between your studio speakers and, and your car or any other system for that matter, like you really get to know where your speakers stand in relation to those other systems, so you can compensate for it, right? For sure, and yeah, I mean, once you hear of had this car for seven years so it's been like the majority of my professional career <laughs> so i kind of you know i know what's what's going to be wrong in it and anticipate those changes now i guess beforehand for sure so you've done some producing too and i was just curious like how how involved do you like to get in the producing stage do you get involved in a lot of the writing or to kind of stay out of that so I, to date, I haven't really done that much songwriting. Um, it's actually something this year I want to get more into, but I just haven't really done a lot of it, so I just stay away from it. That being said, I will get really hands-on with arranging uh, song structure, giving feedback on the writing, not necessarily rewriting parts myself, but if I, if I have a strong opinion 
on a section of the song that I think the artist could write a better part for. I'll tell them why I think it and describe it more in like emotive terms as to how it makes me feel or why it doesn't make me feel how I think it should. So yeah, I'll dig in in those respects. I won't rewrite words for them necessarily unless I have, you know, a specific thought. But I like to try and let the artists do that themselves or other songwriters that I find to get them to do co-writes with. It's interesting you describe it as being an emotive thing and explaining it to the band that way because I think so many people focus on songwriting from like almost this kind of um, structure thing where it's, you know, some people think about it in terms of, oh, chorus needs to hit by this time or whatever. And, yep. it, you know, you're more of a feel guy instead, which is cool. And that, that's not to say that, I mean, I love pop music and I, I love a lot of different pop music. It's something I listen to. Most of the stuff I listen to, Uh, I would say is mainstream, whether it's rock or pop or whatever. And so I do have those sensibilities ingrained as well. Like if if someone writes a six-minute ballad that has no real chorus and it's just a bunch of verses and one chorus at the end, it could be great, but I'll I'll make sure they know what they're doing. Like, do they want to get on the radio? Do they, you know what I mean? What are their career goals in terms of that song? Because if those don't align, there's no point. So yeah, I guess finding out why people do it and then just having feedback for them if I feel it's needed. For sure. So what, in your opinion, makes a good song? What are you looking for when you're giving those kind of notes? I guess for me, when I'm producing... Actually, it's funny. A lot of the things I've produced the last couple of years are things that I thought I wouldn't. It's mostly folk sort of singer-songwriter projects. I've recorded a lot of rock bands and I guess, in a sense, produced them because there was no producer. But um, as far as looking for what changes in songs, it's sort of how it hits me. It's, it's more from just a feel standpoint. And that's why I said I don't always get that involved in the writing because... If someone describes what they're going for and I listen to comparable artists or songs they're doing on that genre from like just a technical analytical standpoint and their song kind of ticks the boxes that I think that it needs to tick for that genre but it doesn't really connect with me because maybe I'm just not a fan of that style of music. I'll still try and offer suggestions and help them but it's a different place than me offering you know my emotive and like my answers based on feel because I'll still work with people that, you know, I don't like all genres of music necessarily. So I'd like th- something's better than others, but um doesn't mean I can't still help artists in those genres. That I'm not maybe the biggest fan of. For sure. Well, and it's good to be working with different genres too, to just to keep yourself fresh and oh, for sure. even learn different techniques that you can apply to, you know, any genre. Like once, once you've done it for so long, you know, it works and you can experiment a little bit more and yeah. kind of merge these different techniques of genres into like a from like a hip-hop project into a pop project or whatever you know definitely that's actually something from watching other engineer interviews um i forget who it was but i was watching one of like the top five guys and one of the things that he said in a pensado's place i think that was hit me really hard is that when he's gets stuck in mixes he'll listen to something that's like the polar opposite genre so if he's working on a country song he'll listen to you know some edm or like go to beatport or something and see what's charting there and kind of get inspiration for that. And that's something I've really tried to incorporate into my sort of um, routine, not routine, but you know, when I get stuck, it's sort of one of the little tricks you can pull out. Just listen to something totally different and try and draw inspiration. For sure. So what's a common mistake that you think a lot of artists make before they enter the studio? Uh, for With a producer or for recording? In terms of like a songwriting perspective. One thing is not having played the songs live and doing sort of your own crowd testing Um, a lot of people write new song they're really excited to record it but i feel like it's really important to to play live and to sort of gauge audience reactions and sort of do your own testing that way to make sure it's a song you want to record and it's one of your stronger songs so yeah i'd say just road testing is a big one i think that's great because you get more you get a lot more opinions when you do it that way rather than sometimes just dealing with one producer too right like 
For sure. Sometimes the band is a little more reluctant to make changes when one producer is suggesting things, but when they realize that a whole crowd of people don't care about the song and think it sucks, then they're like, (laughs) oh, well, maybe we got to go back and fix this a little bit, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So I know you do a lot more mixing than you do producing. So in terms of mixing, what's your mindset going into a mix? Where do you usually start? The first thing I will usually do is, um, so I have a bit of a, just from a technical standpoint, I have a bit of a template that I import. It's basically just uh, aux returns and uh, VCAs for, you know, drums, bass, guitar, all the different instrument groups that are generally in the songs I work on. Um, a lot, a bunch of different effects returns, similar to like when I assisted bigger engineers when I was a runner and assistant. They'd always have, you know, five or six outboard things you'd patch in before the session. So I have like a few different delays, a few different reverbs. Those will change once I hear the song and start the work. So the first thing I do is is import all that just so I have a starting point. So if I feel inspired to add a verb to a vocal, I can just create a send and I don't have to like open the plugin and futz with it, take my mind off the song. While I'm doing all that and routing the song, I'll try to listen to the rough mix at the same time. And so I'd say that's the first thing is listen to the producer or the band's current mix. Hear the I always ask for specifically the last thing that the band and producer was sent. Not whether it's an official rough mix or an edit or just, just whatever the last thing everyone's heard is is what I want to hear. And then just listen to that probably once once or twice at the most. I don't really want to listen to it too much because I want to come at it fresh still, but just to hear what they were hearing and get a sense of the song. So what's your end goal typically with a mix then? Like what, what are you trying to achieve there? I want it to be, to use this word again, uh, sort of as, as emotive, as exciting, as engaging as possible. Um, so obviously if it's a ballad, maybe it's not supposed to be exciting, but there could still be that quality, like a, an engaging sort of quality. My, my goal with mixing and like how I usually know a mix is finished is when I stop picking apart the technical details and I just start listening to the song. If I'm working by myself, which it usually is the case, like I'll actually start dancing around a bit or start moving or like rocking out, you know. And it's like when I start to do that and getting, it's usually by the time I'm getting to like nitpicky stuff like delay throws and you know, just little little quiet effects that are going in the background. Um, that's when I'm sort of know it's, it's done soon. Yeah, but at that point, it's it's a song, right? Exactly. So if, if you're feeling it, then that's a good sign. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that just focus on those small details afterwards, and they can just be there forever nitpicking away. For sure. So I'd say that's that's sort of my goal, just yeah, excitement. Awesome. <laughs> uh, with th- that being said, without changing the intent of the song, that's why I listen to the rough mix. And it depends because if it was if it was done by a producer, and it was like a proper like they actually spent time doing the rough mix, um, it's actually something I noticed a lot more the last couple of years. I started doing a little bit more pop and working for people that are you know full on. They're good producers doing their thing full time. Sometimes I'll finish the mix and I'll a b it to their rough, and it won't be quite as night and day as say it is with like a rock band that self recorded their album or something. But just figuring out how much different they actually wanted as well and trying to gauge what the producer and the artist are expecting, I think is important from the start. Definitely. So you said that in the last few years, you've been kind of hitting the stride with your mixing. At what point did you start to feel like you were really making good mixes and why was that? I've sort of always thought like since, probably since I started, went to audio school, you know, a decade ago, I always felt like that was sort of my strong point. I don't, I'd consistently get good feedback from like peers and, and, uh, teachers and that sort of thing about just balances and quality and that sort of thing obviously my mixes 10 years ago compared to now are night and day different but I've sort of always had a bit of a confidence I guess with mixing but then the last yeah two or three years 
I just feel like I said, when I go to listen in the car or go to listen to my earbuds, just translation is a lot better. It's rare that I'm surprised, like really surprised about a mix on someone else's stereo from a friend's house and play a song. Like, oh, the bass is way too loud. Like, I never really do that anymore. It happens once in a while. It's never <laughs> perfect, but it's just a lot less common. And that's sort of the biggest thing, I guess, is consistency. What's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're crazy for? <laughs> um, so one thing that I do, not a lot, but um, again, just going back to being a drummer for like first thing and and playing brass instruments and bass and stuff like lower instruments in the range. One thing I do because I focus a lot on the rhythm of the mixes. Um, the classic thing is like a rock song if there's no tambourine in the chorus and it's missing some motion you throw in like a 16th tambo or something instead of doing that especially in electronic music or things where you don't want an organic instrument in there but you still want a bit more motion is I'll add delays to r a rhythmic element whether it's a drum or something but it's so low that like I'll forget I put it there but if you mute it the song kind of stops moving so I'll just add motion with delays in the mix but I'll put like an eighth note delay on a snare drum if you solo the drums, it's really loud. If you put it in the mix, it's not that loud. You can't really tell it's there. But yeah, so just adding weird delays that add motion to, to the music without being obvious. That's awesome. So in terms of, um, like, obviously you do the normal cleanup with your tracks. You EQ them. You compress things. How do you go about making more creative moves in mixing? Kind of like what you're saying with the, yeah. the 16th note drum delays and that kind of stuff. I guess it's really just, I, I'm really, like, just in my personality and my, my sort of general life i'm a pretty like careful sort of quiet person but i do have strong opinions and preferences and so i kind of try to find the balance where like with that delay thing i think it makes a huge difference the fact that you can't pick it out once everything's unmuted or unsoloed i mean in the mix maybe some people would say it's not important at all <laughs> but um to me it really adds a bit of motion so i think just doing things like that that aren't i'm not changing the tone of someone's instrument I'm not, you know, adding a obvious part to an arrangement. Like I'm not putting my stamp on it. I'm keeping it as what they intended it to be, but I'm still adding the feel that I thought was missing. So I guess just finding way, creative ways to do that, to make it feel yeah. feel like I want to without making it sound like I made it. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So you've also you've assisted and you've done some work on your own, working with a bunch of different bigger artists. Do you find that those sessions differ from working with smaller artists, and and if so, how? Definitely. From a engineering standpoint, like I've done, because I worked at a, a bigger studio in Vancouver, and uh, so I got to assist on a lot of a lot of pretty big records. And when I was a runner, I ran and you know made coffee on a ton of big records and stuff. Once I got to the engineering phase, I think the biggest difference is everyone knows what they're doing. You don't have to coach. You're not there to like coach the vocalist. If you're engineering, there's a producer and it's a big vocalist. There's also a producer in the room that's doing all the creative stuff. You're just there to make sure things happen as soon as everyone wants them. So preparation's huge. With with smaller artists, they're just happy to be in the studio. They're excited. They don't care if you take 10 minutes to set up a vocal mic or half an hour. A bigger artist shows up. Like if Michael Buble is coming in, everything, he shows up. And if he wants to sing as soon as he walks in the door... He can, and it'll work, and you're ready, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I think that's the biggest thing is just, like, the behind-the-curtain stuff just has to happen before the artist is even there. It's expected. Cool. So you also, you don't just produce and mix the albums that you produce. You you often mix a lot of albums that other people have worked on. So when you get sessions to mix, what problems do you frequently see when you get those sessions? So I think the, the biggest problems, I mean, if it's a rock band, uh, the usual things, drum phase... 
it's something that if you don't work for other engineers in a studio, big studio coming up, I feel like you're you're just not going to learn that properly. <laughs> it's hard to do by yourself because it's such a mysterious thing at first. So yeah, biggest thing is just mic phase. The second biggest thing is really just arrangements more than the actual engineering. A lot of people really, you know, struggle to get clear, clean mixes, but uh, 90% of it's the arrangement. I mean, you can still get clean mixes with a shitty arrangement. It's just way harder because in effect, you're taking, you're carving out section pieces of the song and getting instruments to fit where they not don't naturally fit if the arrangement is too dense or if the arrangement is great and everything has its place then you should be able to put the faders up and it should feel pretty good already i think yeah definitely i think there's a lot of people that are doing recordings in like basements and and in their houses and and that definitely explains the phasing issues like you know it's people that maybe aren't going into a big room where they have an engineer who knows exactly what they're doing and yeah. and doing that kind of stuff so do you have any tips for people getting phasing right with their drums um simple's good uh I mean, personally, actually, so here's a good example. I'm, I'm going to mix something next week or next month uh, in Vancouver. This artist is, uh, there's a grant, there's a, a grant out there where if you do the work in BC, you can, you get basically half your money back from the project. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a creative BC initiative, kind of like the Music Ontario thing we had here. So uh, an artist is flying me out to mix an album there for 10 days, which is sweet, but he's recording it all himself, which is interesting. Um one the biggest things, and at first I fought him on it, uh, was he wanted to do just like a four four mic drum setup, and I realized that actually is probably the best thing he could have done because there's not that much you can screw up. <laughs> you know, it's like he he sent me the tracks he just to check before he started recording the whole thing after he got it set up, and I told like I listened and had a bit of a comment like the left overhead sounded a bit off with the kick, but simple like the less the less mics the less chance of phasing issues. Just just listen flip phases see what sounds better but there's lots of amazing online how-to videos and resources for that but just taking the time to get it right i think at the start and not rushing through it is important definitely it's a big one for sure because i think a lot of people you know if you can be excited to record so you just want to whip through it and yeah and do it and and sometimes you get amazing results from that but sometimes you also really overlook the things that are hurting your recordings your recordings can be a lot better if you just spend the extra two minutes to you know, move a mic around, right? Yeah, for sure. Do you have any tips for gain staging in your mixes? How do you approach that? I think that for myself, uh, and with all the in-the-box mixing now, I guess most listeners are probably going to be in the box at this point. I would say just headrooms, your friend in digital. You have, there's the noise floor doesn't exist. The tracks don't have to be super loud to start. Clip, like I use Pro Tools 12, so I use Clip Gain. I give myself probably six to 10 dB of headroom a lot of the time when I start the mix because as you mix you get th things start to get louder you start to add you know more compression or parallel comps and it creeps up um, so I would say that's the, the biggest thing is just give yourself the space you can always turn it up after do you find that you start working on certain instruments first like all the time or yeah I pretty much do the same thing every time for for anything with like a fully produced uh, either pop or rock song I think this is a pretty common way to start I pretty much start with drums every time um, go through the I'll go through the this is after I've listened to the rough mix and you know organized my session I'll go kick first and just go through the close mics build the drum sound kick snare I'll do kick snare overheads then toms and then cymbal close mics if they are in there and then I'll bring up the bass and balance that with the drums and then the rhythm instruments sometimes I'll put the lead vocal in after the bass it depends on 
the type of song, but sometimes I want to make sure that I have space for that. And a good way to do that is to introduce it early. So you're not, you know, taking up all of the space with the guitars and other instruments that could be competing for the same range as the vocal. Definitely. I'm, I'm very much on the same page with you. Like I always start with my drums and bass and then I'll usually introduce the vocal at that point because guitars I often pan and yeah. you know, the things that are up in, up in the middle are the most important usually. For sure. Yeah, exactly. And also with starting with drums when you're talking about game state, gain staging, um, just it's usually the loudest thing just because of the transients. So I just the way that my mix template's set up and the different kinds of, like I do some parallel compression on the drums usually. If I, if I start and my kick's hitting... I think it's like minus 10 or minus 12 dB, I guess dBFS, it would be in Pro Tools. By the time I add in my parallel drum comp and get everything going and add in a couple of samples if I add them, my mix usually starts hitting around minus 5 average. Are you talking about peaks or RMS? Peaks. I actually, so that's funny, metering's an interesting topic too, because a lot of guys are really, really like, you know, metering's everything that, yeah. you know, won't work. Up. I don't really care about metering. I mean, <laughs> at all, almost. It, I, I don't watch any, I watch meters on the gear, like on my bus compressor and stuff. But um, I just work in the classic Pro Tools peak meters. And I really only pay attention to the, if I'm, I'll pay attention to balancing a left-right thing, like if I'm balancing stereo guitars in the chorus, I'll use meters for that. Um but otherwise, I just make sure I know around the average peak peak I want to get on my master. But um, I don't really pay attention to anything else <laughs> with meters <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I, I hear don't you know. That. I just don't hey, care. If it sounds good, it sounds good, it right? Just, it just hasn't. It's also like so people. There's a big thing about uh, soloing versus not soloing when you're mixing, and like I understand the value and importance of not soloing in the mix but that's not really how I work and it works for me. But just because I've been doing it for so long that I know what things should sound like soloed. Fair enough. Depending on the context of the mix. <laughs> so there's a couple things that I do that I wouldn't tell people starting out to do because it is definitely easier to do the other way from the start. I just done it too long one way and I know how to do it. <laughs> You've perfected your bad habits. Exactly. It's, they're, they're, it's fine. It works for me, but it's way, way easier to start the other way or the, yeah. the more recommended way. For sure. So do you have any other tips for getting the low end right? Do you have anything that you usually do with that? Um, that's an interesting one because every every year in the last 10 years, it seems like, especially in rock and like genres where traditional studios are less and less used, like there's a lot more even awesome, like larger bands that have their own studios that maybe aren't as nice as a traditional big drum room or big mix room goes. Um, low end, I think, has gotten in certain genres almost less important in a way because not as many mixes have great low end unless you get into like top 40 where it's you know one of the top five mixers doing it that's kind of a, i don't know if that's an answer or not but so what i do for low end is if i'm mixing from my place i just check it on my earbuds that's actually it's not <laughs> i pay less attention to it than you think i have a buddy who still works at um one of my one of my friends works at a studio in vancouver that's you know a proper large studio and uh if i'm really unsure of a mix or doing a pop thing sometimes i'll send it to him and just ask him to listen and i i always ask him like how's the low end and he always says it's great but i but i don't have like i stopped using my sub last year i used a sub until last year but i realized because i'm in smaller rooms mixing sometimes it makes it worse instead of better um, because of room modes and stuff so yeah and again it's arrangement it's the biggest thing and, but that's an interesting point that you brought up about having a sub and getting rid of it because i think there's so many people that 
they love the feel of that bottom end. Oh yeah, but, for sure. But it totally can ruin things in a mix. Like yeah. you're just hearing all these things that aren't really there or you're it's it's fooling you most of the time. Actually, I just thought of a better answer than that whole thing I just <laughs> okay. said. The, the the better answer would be I I use a lot of filtering. I I filter bottom out of most things in my mix that don't need it, like everything except probably bass, kick, and sometimes synths will have at least 80 80 hertz to 100 hertz usually. Um, So I think that's actually a big thing for me is that I don't really have that many things in the bottom happening by the time I finish the mix. I'm with you on that. I I think that that's the reason why it doesn't matter as much these days. Like at least at least for you and I, because like we're both. I do the same thing. I roll off everything around eighty or hundred. And if you get rid of that stuff, you really if you get rid of it early, you don't have to worry about it. Exactly, and and I think that's probably it. I just it's not. There's not really much happening down there. So even if it mix like if the I've been actually mixing a bit bass light the last six months. I've noticed just getting masters back and you know hearing it in a new context. um, That's something that. I've been sort of on the fence as to whether I was doing or not. And then I got the fifth or sixth song back and it realized they're always coming back bassier than I sent them. So obviously I'm doing it a little bit too light, but because there's nothing else down there, the mastering engineer boosts the bottom with his nice mastering EQ. And all of a sudden there's more kick drum and more bass, but there wasn't really anything else down there. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's fine. Yeah. It's good when there's that clarity down there for a mastering engineer. They need that. Yeah. The the vocals didn't get all muddy because there wasn't anything happening down there in the vocals or, you know, it didn't ruin the mix. (laughs) So do you always send your stuff to a mastering engineer? Uh, yeah. Unless there's no money. If there's money, yes. Um, 70% of the projects I do go to someone here and for mastering usually. Um, the ones that don't, it's just budget usually. And why do you choose to go to a mastering engineer versus doing it yourself? I like uh, someone that I trust that has different, potentially, hopefully better gear than me um, to just have a once over on the song. I also find um, if it's something I mixed, I have trouble getting it clean, like as loud and cleanly as the, the mastering guy usually use does. Um, sometimes, most of the time, he'll send it back and I'll AB, and it'll be not even that much louder, like a couple dB louder, two or three, maybe four. Sometimes it's like eight. Like sometimes he just, you know, I was way off or something. But usually it's just a tiny bit louder and a little bit clearer. But it's not like, and that's the other thing when you asked about um, how I felt that my mixes, I hit a stride in the last couple of years, is my mastering doesn't come back that much different anymore, no matter really who it goes to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always better, but not like there was five years ago, it was like night and day better. <laughs> whereas like the the rough mix or the mix was embarrassing kind of like i'd listen to both and i'd say holy like, how did i you know <laughs> yeah, yeah well that's definitely one of the advantages to working with a mastering engineer too right you can always have this like open conversation of it, it's 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 like a reality check of your own work exactly right? and, yeah. like you have someone that's been doing it for a while that has good gear and works with tons of different genres and yeah they have this very objective opinion and, and you can see you, you can ask them how your work is and you know, what you can improve on for next time around. And it just makes you a stronger mixer in the end. Exactly. Yeah. And even just getting it back and like, I always, I'll always get a master back. And most of the time I'll, I'll pull up a session pro tools, import the original mix that I, the limited mix I sent to the client, not the unlimited one. Um, and then I'll volume match the master and the limited mix and AB them for a while in different sections and really figure out what, you know, where I could have improved the mix, I guess, sonically. And that's sort of a way I've learned to figure out my trouble trouble sort of frequency ranges or just like how I'm mixing you know if things are too dynamic it's hard to get it as loud as the artist might want it in the end that kind of thing 
So you always send your artists a limited mix? Yeah, that's actually another bad habit thing that I do that um, works really well for me is uh, <laughs> probably after about after the first time I print a mix for myself to listen to, which is like three hours in, I'm pretty much mixing into a limiter a little bit the whole mix. Not a lot. Like I'll use, it'll be a couple dB at the most on the drums. Like just hit the snare drum, we'll be hitting it like one or two dB. Um, sometimes half a dB, sometimes not at all, just like hitting hitting the, you know, 0.1. Um, but that's something I just, I work with. I think because when I started, um, I was mixing in a room with the SSL and a uh, Apogee, the, the, the uh, PSX100 that every studio had forever in the 90s and still does probably. Um, and there's a soft clip on that that a lot of mixers mixed into. And so I kind of just did what these other guys I ran and assisted for did to start because, you know, you just... If you have a mentor, usually you just kind of do what they do, and eventually you learn why you were doing it. Um, hmm. And the soft clip was always eating up. Soft clip and also, I think, more analog gear in the mix bus chain, just in general, hitting into the analog stuff does soak up some of the transients or however you want to say it, saturate, whatever. Um, so I guess I'm kind of doing a similar thing where the limiter is just eating a little bit of if the snare is too peaky or whatever um, in the mix. It just It's just more makes it feel more finished to me and uh, allows me to identify problems in the mix because it's closer to how it's going to be when it's mastered. Yep, that's a really good point. I think it is important to actually have a little bit of limiting on your master bus going on because, yeah, if you're sending it off for mastering, then, you know, it, it's good to have an idea of kind of how it's going to sound, right? Yeah. But, but you just have to be very safe with it. Yeah. You know, if, if you're slamming it too hard, you're going to totally ruin the mix. And I'll always have, like, I have a second monitor set up with my my compressor and my limiter. So I'm always checking those to make sure I'm not hitting it too hard. Like, if I realize I'm hitting it more than a couple dB, either I'll back off the master or I'll find the part of the mix that's causing the issue. Um, the other big thing about having the limited uh, reference mixes for the artist, like, as I'm working, is if I can't get the mixes I'm sending them, pretty loud if they're if, if the limiter is hitting like a couple db and they're not very loud then the master is probably not going to come back very loud like there's there's something in the mix that i could change to make it feel louder if that makes sense mm-hmm. sort of like an early indication of how you know if i'm on the right track or not if the free if it's all balanced properly it should end up pretty loud with only like a couple db of limiting so at what point did you say you add the limiter like do you do it after you've done your rough mix or yeah so basically right after at some point, like in the first three or four hours on a, a new project, like if it's the first song in an album, as soon as I feel like I need a perspective shift, I'll uh, bounce it and go listen on my iPhone. Like I'll go for a walk usually, just down the block or whatever, and listen on my earbuds. So basically after the first mix I print for myself, it's on from then on. Cool. Yeah, I think there's there's some people that do it right away. Like for me, for me, I, I do it with drums because I think the drums are the things that drive the limiters the most. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like all those quick transients. So for me, I... I usually do it like I'll set up my drums, get my rough mix of drums, and then I'll add one and just make sure it's just barely touching that. Because but by the time you add everything else, it usually gets you a couple dB of gain reduction. Do you, do you limit the uh, like the, a drum sub or do you just is that the master? Uh, I always have one like I'll put it after I get my drums done. I usually put it on my master bus, um, but I do sometimes do it on a drum bus as well. I I usually submix all my groups into. A bus and that goes to the the master bus and i don't always have a limiter on the on the instrument bus but right for some things like drums i will just to drive up some level and yeah bring up some some more of the room sound yeah i do that too sometimes yeah it's cool yeah yeah it definitely definitely helps especially with drums i mean you need the you need the body of it right and and sometimes when you just have close mics all you get is just that attack and it 
doesn't have the weight that you need right for sure and especially like depending on how people record it if it was all into really clean pre's you know it's just the transients are just different it, it was if someone recorded it in like a big studio through a neve or something you know yeah so so we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio do you have any examples of something that's gone wrong in a session that you've worked on and how did you fix it i mean there's there's a few nothing's really dramatic because i just just fix them that's the great thing about the studio is it's not live so if you know like i've put the i've put the many times i put a vocal mic up say and the, the singer just it's way too sibilant or just the wrong fit for the singer um so we'll change the mic or I'm trying to think of something that's like a good a good story, but I mean, <laughs> that's all good. Yeah, they're all pretty small, I guess. Just cool. yeah, just taking the time to make it right and and not being afraid to stop what's happening to change it. That's something that took me a while to learn in my career is that people are paying for my opinion, and sometimes you know the bands that's a really good take. You realize that there you pick the wrong overhead mics, and it's gonna just it's not, not going to be the same as if you used another pair. Let's say, um, not and depending on obviously you know how far deep in the session you are, but not being afraid to to say you know hey guys i need to change this like even if they're in the middle of a take just stop them right away and then move on and you know solve the problem yeah it's not just a set and forget type of thing yeah exactly but that also makes your album sound a lot more interesting too when you have differences in sound right for sure yeah definitely what's a good lesson that you've learned from working with another producer or mixing engineer that's actually i haven't sent a lot of stuff to be mixed by other people and that's something i want to start doing more of as i start producing more especially I'd say this isn't someone I worked with. This is, um, so, okay, obviously, you know, Max Martin is. So yep. a, a buddy of mine stumbled acro across a bunch of, um, there's like this zip file going around the internet with a bunch of stems of Max Martin productions. I don't know how or why, but they exist and it totally is the album because you can AB it. It's def, it's, they're the mixes. Um, and the biggest thing was just realizing how, how compressed things are <laughs> in those in, in those was it serban serban mixes serban guinea yeah um just how much compression is actually happening um that's the biggest thing is just not being afraid to push things farther than you think they might might be comfortable yeah same thing as when i worked with um i assisted for an engineer named uh, a mixer named randy staub who's like one of the he's one of the top guys i'd say in north america he's amazing and there was one time where he finished we were, I was printing mixes after he left, and I was just looking at his vocal chain, and I think between the four compressors or five compressors on the vocal, like it added up to like <laughs> it added up to like 28 dB of reduction or something if you calculated all the reduction. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds great, you know. Like I, hey, if it sounds great, yeah, that's the important. I would never thing, right? have known. Um, well, I, I think especially early on, a lot of people are are afraid to compress things, and it's hard when you can't hear it, like that, because compression takes so long. At least for me, it took it took a long time for me to really figure out what I was even listening for and then um, to identify it and also f realize like everyone has preferences, especially with, with compression, like everyone, you know, has different release times they like on different things. And I'm just realizing what my preferences were and identifying when it was too much, I guess. Cause so what are you listening for then with compression? Mostly, um, well, it depends. Sometimes I just wanted to even out the dynamics and the performance if it's a dense mix, say there's like a a guitar part like a that needs to needs to be there but not poke out. Just I'll do something. Sometimes I'll even do a limiter, like put a limiter on more percussive guitar parts, or especially acoustics. I find I'll even put like a L2 or something, just hitting a couple dB just to even out the the spikes because I don't want the the strums to poke out. But um, in general, like for vocals, I'm looking for it to sort of just add 
like a clarity, even out dynamics in the performance. Um, and then also depending on the kind of compressor, like certain, like especially the UAD stuff and modeling, uh, different compressors add a different uh, sonic characteristic. Some, you know, like the Blue Stripe 1176 adds like a bit of a bottom end thing and it sounds a bit different than say the LA2 and then the different LA2s all have slightly different EQ curves to them. Um, so it sort of depends. Sometimes it's like a tool to change the character sonically. Sometimes it's just um, maintenance, just leveling out dynamics. So it yeah, depends on definitely depends on what it is. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things with compression that a lot of people don't get is they just think it's a dynamic tool, but you can actually get so much more character out of a compressor just by picking the right one. Definitely. Do you have any special tips or tools that you use that have helped you with either the quality of your mixes or your workflow? I would say workflow, it's not a tool, but it's just a being organized, just doing things I learned from the other guys I assisted, like color coding, always putting your tracks in the same order, just simple little things like that make your whole life a lot easier and make you be able to work faster. Um, you always like I always know where the drums are in the session. I always know what to look for if I'm trying to find a guitar part. Um, even as far as like I have different color ranges for if if there's vocals, if there's higher or lower parts, there'll be certain shades of red, that kind of thing. Um, so just organization, I'd say, is big and prep. Very cool. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. You need to have an organized session. Yeah, definitely. It makes a big difference, especially if you come back to it two weeks later or something for a recall and you can't find tracks or, or whatever. <laughs> definitely. So a lot of people that are listening to this are relatively new in their careers with mixing. Do you have any advice for someone who's just getting started? Yeah, I'd say just keep practicing. Um, it takes a long time to get good. I mean, probably less time now that there's all this information out there. There, You know, there weren't... Like when I started, there were... Was YouTube a thing? And it was, you know... Pretty new. I could find out how to do stuff on the internet, but it usually wasn't in videos. <laughs> it's usually reading like sound on sound or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like that, right? You get the magazine or whatever. I don't think they even had a website yet, probably. So, <laughs> so yeah, just soak up all the information, videos, practice, uh, find peers that you think, you know, maybe it's sometimes hard to get someone like me or Mike to just listen to your stuff and give you feedback because we're all really busy. But if you do manage to find someone that likes you and, you know, having someone to bounce mixes off of, if not even just other friends, musicians, just someone to, you know, send your work to and get an objective opinion about. Unfortunately, you know, don't be afraid to do stuff for free for a while. It's, you know, it's just that kind of industry. It's like any, any art, like professional dancers are not paid to dance right away. Um, actors, you know, they're working on university films, for free. It just takes a while to build up the skill set to where you can do it as a career. Awesome. And what about getting new clients? Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, make friends. Make lots of friends. <laughs> um, live sound is actually something that I never, I've done a lot of, but not, it was never my focus. But I would say it's actually a great way to, um, it's, it's an easier point of entry for the industry in general because there's just more of it. There's tons of venues, there's tons of, depending on where you live, I guess, obviously in the world, but um, there's lots of events work to be had, especially if you're like a well-spoken, courteous person and you care what the band thinks and you ask them how their monitor mixes are. Most of the time that will lead to you finding recording clients because all those bands will know you as the sound guy. They'll start asking, you know, you'll talk to them, make friends. Um, so I'd say that's actually a great entry point, even though it's not mixing. But I, I think live sound is really important, though. It's it For sure. I have done a lot of it too, and and I feel that the one thing that I got out of it was it makes you work faster. Yep, definitely. You, you have to commit, and you have to just be like ready to go. Yeah. at all times. It's kind of way more. It's almost like way more zen in a way because it's all in the moment. Like that moment never happens again. I mean, now you can record the sets with like the Avid 
consoles and stuff but <laughs> which i'm glad i never had because i don't want to hear those mixes again probably <laughs> um but yeah it's sort of you know it all happens real time and it's done and the only thing you have to go on was people's memory of it which is interesting not like it could be it could be super nerve-wracking too oh but... that's why i stopped doing it <laughs> yeah. it just stressed me out too much but um super fun though it is a lot of fun and and the thing with that is that like yeah you just always have to be quick yeah you know you can't take your time and you just have to learn to make quick decisions and i i really feel like personally that really helped speed up my mixes i used to spend a couple days on a mix just like kind of fine-tuning things but now it's like okay i know where i'm going i know what i need this to sound like yeah yeah for sure it's and that's actually a big point too that you just said you know where you're going that's something that i maybe i couldn't always um if you'd asked me at the start of a mix i can't always answer in words but i usually have a pretty strong feeling about it at least um, and that's one thing that I think makes makes a good artist or musician mm-hmm. or producer is just having an end goal. Well, it helps too when you've kind of going back to your point of having reference mixes. Yeah. You know, when when you've already heard the song, you kind of already know what the band's looking for or what the song at least sounds like, and you can kind of frame an end goal for yourself. For sure. And same same with live. If you're working with the same band day in and day out, you you have the same idea, right? You you know where you need to go to to make that sound pro. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, as far as other advice, um, yeah, just do it a lot and make a lot of friends, go to shows. It's all relationships. Um, the, the band that's playing, like, I don't know if they still have, like, we were talking about, uh, all ages shows the other day when we were out together. Yeah. Uh, they don't still do it anymore. Probably like at the time I went to these shows at a rec center that this local band threw and, you know, there'd be three or four rock bands every Saturday. Two, two or three of the guys from those bands ended up being in like fairly notable Canadian bands. You know, like if at the time I, if I was older and already on my career path. If I'd made friends with them then, 10 years later, it could lead to some kind of gig that you wouldn't expect, right? It's all sort of long game yeah. relationships <laughs> and being <laughs> Same here. Being yeah, genuine. I think back to all of those rec center shows I used to go to and like so many bands from that scene have blown up and yeah. it's like, oh man, I, I wish <laughs> yeah. that I had like developed my craft yeah. at, at that point and could have got those guys, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's just all, all relationships for sure. For sure. Just going out to shows and finding new talent. Yep. Cool. Who are three of your top favorite mixers? Uh, so one I already talked about, Randy Staub. Um, he was sort of one of the people I... I was a runner for a long time for him, so we'd, you know, not even in the room most of the time. I assisted on a few albums where I was in the room doing the editing and routing and stuff. Um, but his just his clarity and like his low end is amazing. You're talking about low end before. Um, and his consistency. And also... He just, he's not lazy. Like he's sometimes, if he had to spend three days on a mix, sometimes he would, you know? Um, so he's a big one. Um, this is, That's awesome you got to work with him too. Yeah, I was really lucky to like come up in a place where I got to work with a guy like that. So how did you, how did you land that? Um, not, not to oh, derail no, the conversation, I, but... I was, um, so I was, I started at the warehouse studio in Vancouver and um, that was just, that was the running. Like I went and I worked for two weeks for free. Like I had an interview. Okay, so the short version of the story is, uh, after audio school, I went backpacking as I guess a lot of people do. I went to like Thailand for a month cause I had a friend there and <laughs> trying to find myself and you know, all that stuff. Everybody goes to Thailand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I like to think it was at the start of the trend cause it was like a while ago, but you know, it came back, didn't know what I was going to do. Went to like meditation retreats and it was kind of getting all weird hippie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, then I got a call, I sent out a bunch of resumes before I left, got a call saying, Hey, like you can get an interview at the warehouse and I was freaking out cause it's, you know, I didn't expect to it to be a bigger studio like that um had the interview and they were like well you need you need a car and i didn't have a car i sold my car to pay for part of the trip and then 
So I ended up figuring out how to buy like a really shitty, you know, it was like a $600 car probably. But, <laughs> but yeah, I basically just, I bought a car for the job and then worked for two weeks for, I worked for two weeks for free. They don't really do free interns there, which I really respect. Um, at least at the time they didn't at all. And so I did two weeks of like scraping graffiti off walls and picking up like it's in a gross part of Vancouver, picking up like needles and stuff, obviously not with my hands, but <laughs> you know, just cleaning all the shittiest classic kind of runner stuff you can do. And I got hired after the end of the two weeks. Um, and then I made coffee for people and cleaned up sessions for, uh, over two years. It was one of the longest, it was just a point at that place where no one was moving. All the assistants had been there for like five or seven years. Um, no one was quitting, no one was getting fired. So I just did a lot of, a lot of making coffee and making meals and cleaning up yep. and watching the other assistants. Well, that's a good point just right there too, is like the intern idea. So many people think, okay, well, I'm going to get this intern job and I'm going to work my way in really quick. But a lot of these studios are very small and there isn't that room. So you just have to hustle. And it was the biggest studio in Vancouver. There's, it's like three, three full floor. There's four studios now. There's three studios when I started and yeah, I was, I like made coffee for, Almost three years, probably. At the end of year two, I started assisting and running. But at that point, I didn't work in the control room with any of these engineers ever. And I did that for like 14 to 16 hour days. Some, so what kept, what kept you going? It was most awesome. people would just be like, oh, let's get a minimum wage job at McDonald's and do that. Also, I, made, I did make minimum wage. Okay. Um, it was hourly, which actually adds up after 16 hours when you're like 19. You yeah. know, it actually worked out to like I saved... I think while I was working there, I was living at home for the first bit, but I think I saved up like 10 grand in the first couple of years. Amazing. Which is, yeah, most people don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't know, it just worked really hard and I was really excited to be there. I loved going in. And it was like a really interesting life training experience. I actually learned, I learned how to cook working there. I learned how to clean. They had, like, I just, I learned all my life skills. It's kind of like the military a bit. <laughs> the glamorous life of an engineer. Yeah, I, you know, I got good at uh, massaging consoles. It's <laughs> <laughs> the worst. Um, yeah, and just the biggest thing I think from that whole experience and having to sort of assist and run for that long, because I was there for about six years, and every time I kind of leveled up in my career, I'd do less hours there and start doing more live sound, some other things, just because there wasn't as much engineering work, um, because it's all a lot of bigger engineers coming there with their own like staff. Mm-hmm. But um, just learning how to anticipate people's needs, how to read people, um, how to get along with and, you know, adjust to different social situations really quickly, I think was the biggest thing I learned from from that whole experience. Um, like he, and that, that's such an important skill to have. It's the most, the yeah, it's the most important one. Like you can go in a room with pretty much any type of artist or band and within, you know, 30 seconds, I'll have kind of figured out what's going on probably. And just whether I should just sink along the wall and no one wants to talk to me or whether I should get really in there and, you know, mm-hmm. have loud opinions or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that is kind of a thing you have to do as the intern is just kind of be quiet. Oh, yeah, it's the biggest. I think so many people get fired just because they, they try to stick their nose into people's business and, like, you know, give their opinion. And it's like, well, who's this guy? Yeah, like, exactly. You know? <laughs> and, and some people you can do that with. Yep. Like you said, you got to read them. For sure. But... And, and that's the thing that's like that attitude is definitely a lot more in the past now than, you know, even at the bigger studios. Like, I go back there and work when I'm in Vancouver. And just in general, everything's a lot more relaxed. It's way less, you know, it's just less intense now just because of it's all money. Like there's there's less budget for projects. So people can't afford to be dicks because 
<laughs> you know <laughs> it's a good rule of thumb don't be a dick yeah like no one should be a dick but there were a lot more people being dicks 10 years ago in studios than now you know yeah because <laughs> they could they could afford to yeah i guess so yeah <laughs> so so randy was one of your top three yep, so, so uh, the other who else you got? producer i already mentioned him as well from production standpoint max martin just his his arrangements, this is all stuff I probably already talked about in the other answers, but his arrangements and his ability to get one one huge thing between everything he produces, the lead vocal is always incredible. Like, it always sounds incredible, and the performance is always just so engaging. And I don't know, like, at first I thought, you know, just picking good artists, but then you listen to 20 of his projects from, like, a 15-year span, and they all sort of do the same. Like, not the same. They're all very different singers, but they all have the same level of quality, um, which I think is really interesting. And I'd never really noticed that with, with anyone else before. He's a singer himself. So yeah, maybe that has sure. something to do with it. I bet it does. Totally. Cause I, I've actually heard some of his old demos that he, that he's made for people Oh yeah, and where he, where he's singing the tracks before you get like <laughs> well, Britney awesome. Spears on it or whatever. Right. And Just then like, the guide vocals? it's awesome. Like they, they should be the final vocals sometimes. <laughs> right. Like, That's super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. For a third, I don't know if I have a third. I I never really focus on... It's rare that I focus on, funnily enough, people behind the records unless I have a connection to them. I was I was never good at history in school. I never really paid attention to like <laughs> that kind of stuff, and I kind of still do the same thing. There's tons of records that have been influential, but I probably couldn't even tell you who produced some of them off the top of my head, which is hilarious considering what we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, you just focus on your career rather I just focus than on, the, comp- the competition out there. Yeah, I, I could tell you what a lot of guys in the local scene are doing. Like, I know what a lot of my peers are doing, but as far as, yeah, no, I don't know. That's it. Uh, that's all right, man. <laughs> so um, we're getting to that point where we've got to start to wrap up. How can people follow you online? What's the best way to, to reach out to you if they want? Yeah, so um, you can check out my website. It's uh, www.bowmansound.com, B-O-W-M-A-N, sound. Um, I'm on Instagram, Josh G. Bowman. Uh, those are the two best ways, probably. Cool. Yeah. And uh, are there any cool projects that you're working on now that you would want to plug? Yeah, sure. Um, I just finished some mixes for this band called Bad Pop. Um, they're formerly a different name based out of Vancouver, but uh, I'm pretty excited about that. They just got signed to a label in the UK, and uh, the first single off the album I worked on a few years ago, which is being rebranded, and so long story, but it's finally out. Um, it debuted on BBC Radio 1, which is super cool because I don't think I've had anything on UK radio before. Awesome. Um, it's getting some play on there still. Uh, so, yeah, they've got an album coming out, Bad Pop. Their one first single is out now. Um, I'm producing an EP for a local singer-songwriter, Braden Mitchell. Um, it's like acoustic, um, drums, bass, guitar, kind of like folk, folk rock kind of stuff. Um, super good. It should be finished in the next month or so. And yeah, I got a couple album mixes coming up, but um, nothing else I can really talk about so far. <laughs> cool, that's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for being on here. You got a lot of great advice. I'm sure people will love it. Cool, yeah. I hope people get some out of it. It's great chatting with you. Awesome, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks. So that was my interview with Josh Bowman. It's always a pleasure talking to that guy. He's a really good dude, and I think he shared a lot of really useful information in here. And I'm sure you can learn a lot from that as well. As always, guys, if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered on this podcast or even in any of my video tutorials that I post on my website, please send me an email at questions at masteryourmix.com and let me know what challenges you're facing. What questions do you have that if you can get an answer to would help you advance to the next step in your skill development? 
And if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please check out the website MasterYourMix.com. And on that website, at the top of the page, there's a link so that you can download your free copy of the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide that I've put together to help show you what settings to use with EQ and compression on a variety of tracks in your mixes so that you can get better results faster and know exactly what to be listening for as you're working on stuff. So make sure to check that out. And if you like what you heard in this podcast, please make sure to go on iTunes and leave a review and a comment. That would be greatly appreciated. It really helps us get exposed to a lot more people so that we can keep spreading the word. So that's it for now, guys. Take care. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.